a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather on a regular basis, like daily, to talk about stuff that matters. Which means a lot of this takes place out of the world of politics. I think I have a topic that's going to get some going to get some people thinking today. I want to welcome Sharon Wright Weeks uh, joining me now on the show. And uh, Sharon, you and I have uh, we have we've crossed paths more or less uh, online. But uh, for people who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then you and I can have a marvelous discussion about the death okay. penalty. <laughs> yes, uh, interesting topic, isn't it? Well, um, thank you. I am the representative legally and personally for the Brenda Wright Lafferty Foundation. She's my older sister. She and my niece were murdered in 1984 in American Fork by uh, the Lafferty brothers. I will offer their names since uh, I want to make sure that we, you know, keep this topic organized. But uh, Ron the elder brother, and Dan. Brenda was married to Alan Lafferty, who was the youngest brother. Um, I was, it was three months before my uh, 16th birthday when they were killed on July 24th. And uh, I got really involved with the death penalty after uh, the, the death penalty that was given to Ron Lafferty was commuted and he received a whole nother trial. At that point, I was old enough to, you know, understand and recognize more about the law. And, you know, I grew up really conservative. And so my dad had, you know, taught us, my parents taught us that we respect the law. It was, uh, it, we had the outcome that that the jury gave us and that the judge ordered, and we were okay with that. So um, I have spent my whole adult life working on the death penalty. It's kind of a little bit of personal responsibility that I maybe shouldn't have had to take on, but I have taken on. Um, I am from a large family. My parents are from born and raised in Montana, grew up in Idaho. There are six girls and one boy and he's the baby and I am sharing my message on behalf of my family. Okay and and just so we're clear um, are you in favor then of repealing the death penalty? Yes I am in favor of repealing and replacing ah. the death penalty. Yes there is a replacement uh, that is important. It's important for the courts to have options that provide families with justice and justice that's attainable. When you receive justice from a court of law, uh, the victims or those that are left behind, like family members and friends, take that justice to heart. It actually does become justice because it does come from a jury and it is signed by a judge, which we recognize in our country as the highest legal authority, I guess. So 
it's an agreement that's signed you know, by a judge. So as a, I guess, a family with civic responsibility and uh, a family that is a law-abiding and productive family in the community, uh, we were taught to accept what, what justice was given to us by the system that we have, you know, in place. Okay. I'm, you may, maybe you've heard this before, but uh, I was a little surprised when I learned that you were against the death penalty. And it's only because uh, where you have that very close connection with your sister having been murdered along with her, her infant daughter, um, it would be totally understandable Sharon, if, if vengeance you know, was was a part of, of your worldview. Right. But uh, I'm very intrigued to hear um, why you, you would uh, take the side of, of let's repeal the death penalty, let's replace it. I used to be very pro-death penalty, but I've lost oh. confidence that that I can trust the government to do the right so thing. So that's what it is. Yeah. That's, you, you nailed it right there. Uh, to be very clear, I am not against... Uh, death penalty. The death penalty that we now have in our society is no longer a death penalty. So what we have with the Utah death penalty is not a true death penalty. It's not one that functions properly. And uh, that is where my mind changed. It's really hard to go through the work that you do go through in obtaining the justice that the court system handed to you and told you that you would have um, to never receive it. And it wouldn't matter how many years uh, an inmate was alive, which, you know, they don't live to be ripe old age. It's a hard life being incarcerated. So Ron Lafferty passed away in 2019. And he was uh, 78 years old at the time of his passing. That's pretty old in, in uh, relative terms to being incarcerated. And, you know, being involved with the death penalty, I was just looking at these cases. And, you know, I started noticing after 15 years that, that we weren't getting anywhere. We were still in the state appellate court system which their responsibility is to make sure that the state did the job correctly in, you know, dotting all their I's and, and crossing their T's, making sure that, that, because this is, that's a serious penalty. And, you know, that's not one you can make a mistake with. Right. As time went on, I noticed more and more mistakes that had been made. And then I really understood why this system couldn't be rushed. Because in my sister's case, in my family's case, we did not have a whodunit. There was no, uh, there was no skepticism that we had the right person. They admitted it. Uh, they, they introduced evidence that they had written it down. It was something that was planned. Their reasonings were very um, upfront. It had to do with religion. Um, you know, it just, there was just no question. I was completely dumbfounded that, that these attorneys that we have in the state of Utah, which are top notch, and, you know, I love them, 
I, I appreciate the work that they do, but they could not even get it done. And my sister's killers, killer, one of them was on death row, the other one that you don't ever hear about, which is why I'm in favor of a life sentence without the possibility of parole, is that uh, there's no reason to discuss them anymore. They don't get any headlines. Uh, so we don't have to uh, make them famous by having them go through the appellate process. So, you know, I, I, I was asked a question recently, would you be in favor of a death penalty if it happened quicker? And I said, absolutely. But I have to <clears throat> take that back just a little bit because of the mistakes that the government has made. And it's because of the mistakes that the government has made and that government has less and less faithful followers mm -hmm. that we can't rush through the process. We absolutely cannot rush through the process. Sharon, let me, I, I just want to get a little clarification here. When you talk about uh, government has made mistakes in applying the death penalty, is this, does this mean innocent people have been put to death? As yes. a result? Yes. The numbers that I have, um, which I hope we publish all the information that our coalition has gathered, because it, it, they weren't my reasons to begin with. My whole reason for wanting to uh, repeal and replace the death penalty is because I don't want anybody else to go through the, the hell that you will have to go through if the person that took your loved one ends up on death row. It is the beginning of your own personal hell. We are up against the break, but when we come back, I, I, I don't want to dredge up painful stuff, but I really would love for you to describe for us what, what that hell is like, why, why it's important that we consider not just you know going along with the process as it is, but, to, but look at some very meaningful reform. And it sounds like some very powerful people within the Utah legislature are actually on board with this. I'm talking with Sharon Wright Weeks, and she has a very compelling story to share. We will be back with her, just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Sharon Wright Weeks is my guest. She has uh, close as in personal family ties to a very tragic event, a murder of her, the murder of her sister and her niece uh, years ago, 1984. Um, Sharon, I still, I remember when this took place because I, I was living in the Idaho community uh, where your mm -hmm. sister and you were from. Um, in fact, I got a scholarship to the College of Southern Idaho for speech and drama. And your sister uh, had, had left some, some really, uh, you know, wonderful friendships there in the, in the, you know, oh, speech and did. drama department at, at yeah. CSI. Yes, she did at college of Southern Idaho. Yeah. She is a great influence for the short amount of time that she lived. 
Absolutely true. As we were going to break, you had mentioned that uh, when a person is sentenced to death and placed on death row, um, obviously there's punishment for them, but you mentioned that it also was the beginning of a kind of personal hell for you and other family members, uh, you know, related to the victim. How, how does that punishment spill over into the, the victim's families? So after the initial court hearing, um, and you, you are given what you thought was going to be justice, there is a huge sense of relief that the uh, people in charge, <laughs> whoever that is, will take care of this. This will be handled. And, you know, for the first few years after the initial trial, we had ABC, CBS, and NBC. So we really didn't hear a lot about what was going on with the appellate process. I knew there was some kind of a process that that they had to go through, but I did not have a clue as to how rigorous that process was or what exactly it entailed. So in 1985, Ron Lafferty was sentenced to death. In 1989, Uh, the courts found that the judge had used the wrong method in determining whether he was competent to stand trial at that time. So they set aside his sentence and gave him a whole new trial. That took about seven years. In 1996, he was retried. I went through that whole process. Part of what what began my personal hell was at that time. I was 26 years old. The process took about three weeks for the whole retrial. I was a lot older now to, you know, even 10 years when you're really young is is quite a bit of time as far as maturity goes. I sat in the courthouse every day. I I watched the whole process and I lost a 20-week pregnancy because of it. If we had not had a death penalty to begin with, I would not have been in that position and that's too high of a price for us to pay to give up a child because of the stress that's involved. So in 1996, when we had had the retrial, um, again, I mean, it just goes so smoothly and you, you see your justice system working so well. I just really had the expectation that it would be handled. And about three years later, you know, we've got, we got a decision from Utah Supreme Court denying his his appeal to to get another trial and i thought well, what we just had a trial how could how does this work so i really started doing what research i could back then the internet was very young in the late 90s and um i i started doing research with the deseret news they had done a really good job with publishing everything and i got in touch with them so every time there was an appeal, which there are a, there's a whole ladder to climb, and they've added so many more rungs because of the mistakes that have been made that we are quadruple checking. You know, that's what this is. It's not a double checking system. It's a quadruple checking system. And every single time we need to check through that system, it hits the headlines. So from 1984, 1985, going from NBC, CBS, and ABC 
on television and newspapers, local newspapers, the internet exploded with 24-hour news, constant news. In every single one of those news segments, they talk about the horrific events of what happened to my sister and my niece. And it absolutely was a heinous crime. And I do absolutely believe that if there was a penalty to be given for somebody that had conjured and followed through with that kind of a crime, it would be fitting to be the death penalty. But ultimately, they didn't ask me to make that decision. They asked the jury. So every two to three years during this process, you have headline after headline after headline uh, lots of media attention. Um, we had book authors come out of the woodwork wanting to understand about the case. And so it just, it just never gave us the ability to allow Brenda and Erica to rest. And that is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the personal hell. It's, As you're describing this, it just hits me right between the eyes that mm-hmm. it's, it's unfinished business. I mean, Grant, I want, I want due process. I want the court to, to make sure that due process has been afforded. But um, when it's dragging on into years and years of unfinished business, um, that I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how tough that must be for you and your family. Yes. As a matter of fact, um, I went to Senator, or excuse me, Representative Lowry Snow who is, I am one of his constituents here in uh, Washington County. And I sat down with him in 2017, and I was curious if, if any of our leadership understood what was happening to us, what was being allowed to happen to us uh, through this non-functioning death penalty and appellate process, which was never-ending. And, you know, he, he didn't have any idea and I don't think that it was malicious on, on any part of our leadership, but there's a huge communication gap that none of our legislature knows uh, the pain and suffering that Utah families are going through with this non-functioning process. Sharon, we're, we're down to our last couple of minutes here, and, and I can already see I'm going to have to have you and probably Lowry Snow back on the show to, to further go into this. But when you talk about replacing the death penalty, um, what does that replacement look like? Can you give us just a quick summary of what, what it might look like? So Lowry's way better at this than I am. I haven't gotten involved with the details of the appeal and replace, repeal and, and replace. I do know that it gives the option of a 45-year sentence to life. It does give a judge, instead of the 25-year that we have now, uh, Dan Lafferty uh, was held accountable, and his justice was to serve two life sentences uh, back-to-back. So in Utah, that's 25 years times two. I didn't know that. It sounds weird when you say a life sentence and you find out it's only 25 years. So this will add a 45-year option that judges will be able to use, depending on the crime. Okay. We're definitely going to have to do some follow-up. For people who want to get their minds around this subject or at least become better informed, are there any resources that you might steer them toward? Um, I would contact your legislator. 
Okay. I, I am trying my darndest to educate them on what the reality of the death penalty is. I honestly expect them to know. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't. But this will be a good way for them to learn. They need to know and they need to be sharing it with us, their people. Well, I have watched over the years. I don't know how long you and I have been friends on Facebook, but I've watched over the years, and you have been tireless in your efforts to raise awareness and, of course, um, to to memorialize your sister and your niece. Um, Sharon Wright Weeks, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm going to have you back, and I'll probably have you and Lowry Snow both back at the same time so we can delve a little further into this. Thanks again. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to the sponsors who make this program possible. I can't begin to express how much I appreciate them enabling me to focus on the job at hand, which is to find the the best, most credible, most principled information that I can and then convey it to you on a daily basis. I know it's a great way to avoid work, right? No, I promise you, I'm I'm working every waking moment of every day. But uh, the support of these sponsors is is just it's incredible. And I recommend them to you as as businesses and individuals that you can trust to deliver on whatever it is that you need. Now, this includes MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. Of course, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. Why am I giving all the .coms? It's, it's because the, I have links to every one of these in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Dot com <laughs> and you can uh, you can link to all of them and and see what's up for yourself so I felt a fair amount of frustration as I've watched the Kyle Rittenhouse case uh, tried in the court of public opinion and you know there's a lot of second guessing and it's not just the left-wing media that's been beating the drum well you know Kyle never should have been out there in the first place you know he never should have had a gun he never should have crossed state lines he had no business being at a riot and so forth. And I think people have lost sight of what natural rights are and how natural rights work. So I'm very indebted to commentators like Kent McManigal, who uh, is uh, he's a regular blogger and writer. Uh, I just picked up this piece that he had published off of uh, everythingvoluntary.com. Self-defense isn't a crime. And this is about as short and sweet as it gets. He says, if Kyle Rittenhouse had been a black, trans, communist Biden fan who showed up to support Antifa, I would still see what he did as self-defense. The point he's making here is that a person and his beliefs are irrelevant to me in such a case. And he says, those who try to make this about the person are trying to mislead you down a deadly path to right where they want you. So this is counter to the, the mainstream narrative. But I think Kent McManigal zeroed in on the, on the principles at stake here. Kyle was where he had a right to be, doing what he had a right to do. He was armed, as was his natural human right, 
He was being pursued by people who were a credible threat to his life. And he did just enough to end that threat. He didn't keep firing into the aggressors once the threat was ended, which would have been understandable under the circumstances with stress and all. Now, here's the interesting part. And this, to me, this is what makes Kent an authoritative voice on this because it shows consistency in his principles. He says, do I agree with Kyle's opinions? No. He says he's a cop sucker and apparently a Trump fan. Okay, Kent is not. But he says, I probably wouldn't like him in person, but it doesn't matter. Do I think it's smart to go to a riot, even in defense of strangers' property? Probably not. But he says, I would hope strangers would help me if it were my property in danger. So I'm not too set on that. Either way, it was still self-defense each time he pulled the trigger. And he says, if I were on the jury, I would refuse to find him guilty of anything, no matter how trivial, just because they were arrogant enough to put him on trial. And I wouldn't budge. He says, this is a line in the sand. And that's it. Plain and simple. Now, there are a couple great lessons that we can draw from this, and I'll, I'll try not to beat them to death, but if you are willing to stand up for the rights of people, even those with whom you really don't agree, then you're probably on the right track. But if, you're, if your scruples and your morals only apply to those who agree with you, that's a problem. And as much as I hate to say this, it's, it's true. Many of my right-leaning or conservative brethren and sisters, uh, we, we sometimes tend to favor things that would disenfranchise or punish other people simply because of their beliefs as opposed to their behavior. I mean, I've, I've experienced personally, maybe not shrieks of outrage, but like clear smoldering disapproval by indicating that I don't really care what another person is thinking even if they are holding thoughts that I'm like, wow, that's that's kind of outdated. Case in point, some years ago, um, I, I showed up for my radio job, which meant I had to, uh, you know, be at the station early, five o'clock in the morning. And there was a guy unloading a truck and delivering things to a nearby office furniture store. He had a huge pallet of, I don't remember what it was, but it was heavy enough. He was actually having some difficulty getting the, the pallet moved. Since I had time on my hands, I said, well, let me give you a hand. And I helped him move it. Super nice guy. Truck driver. I think he was somewhere out of either North or South Carolina. Had a pretty strong accent. And as he was describing, you know, he goes, yeah, I only, I only truck drive as, you know, kind of a sideline. He goes, my family has a tree trimming business. <clears throat> and he talked about, you know, that, that was the bulk of their family income was this tree trimming business. And so I asked him, well, who runs the business while you're out here on the road? And he started telling him, <clears throat> excuse me, telling me about this wonderful employee. I forget the employee's name, but he was like, man, I'll tell you, you know, this, uh, this employee, he is so good. He is so trustworthy. I just, I know that the job is going to get done and it's going to get right. My business is in good hands with this guy. And then he let something slip. And, and I'm trying to remember. Um, I don't think he said, this man is an African-American. He probably used a slur that uh, that most of us are familiar with, but it was the most interesting backhanded compliment I've ever heard in my life um, in that he said, you know, now this guy, you know, I'm just going to paraphrase. This guy's black, but he's a good guy. He knows his place. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I've not, not encountered, you know, that kind of thinking out in the open um, in a really, really long time. 
And I was relating this to my coworker, and I, I'm sad to tell you, my coworker was very, very woke, as in like <laughs> rabidly woke. And when I was sharing that with her, I said, you know, it was really interesting. He, he was talking about this guy with this great affection, but then in the same breath, he turns around and notes that because of the color of this guy's skin, he thought it was really impressive. This guy knew his place, but man, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. And, and she was like, well, I hope you called him on the carpet for it. And I had to stop and think for a second. Okay, was that my place? Is it my place to say, hey, you can't use that kind of language around me, dude. You know, I didn't. And maybe I was wrong for, for not correcting him. But like I said, there was this, this uh, I was having cognitive dissonance because clearly he was talking about this guy as if he believed, well, you know, he's lesser, but at least he knows his place. But he was speaking of him with such affection that it was like there, there was no hatred or animus. There was just just a really politically incorrect attitude. And it wasn't a blanket statement about all oh, black people. It was just, you know, like I say, it was it was an older attitude that you just don't encounter very often. And it and to my coworker, it seemed just unconscionable that I could I could hear such a thing and not immediately get into a rage and you know set him straight, and tell him this is the way things ought to be, and you you can't hold those attitudes. So I don't know. You tell me. Did I do wrong by not jumping in the middle of the guy and correcting him and reminding him that uh, you know this is the way things have to be? Because I don't think I did. I don't think that was the point. The whole reason I stopped to help him in the first place was because that was a neighborly thing to do. The guy needed some help. I happened to be in the right place in time, and I was there to help him. Not there to mentor him on this is the right, right attitude you should have for your life. So my point is simply this. Yes, he held an attitude that I personally do not share. And that's that's Okay. His behavior was peaceful, even if his attitude was, you know, different and in some ways a little bit uh, shocking to me. It's his right to believe as he wants to believe. And maybe I could have said something that, uh, you know, would have, would have caused him to think, I don't know. Again, I, I didn't feel like I needed to step up and say something. Now, if he had been going off on a rant and, and basically throwing everybody of color under the bus, I might have said, you know, I really don't... Uh, I don't like that kind of language or I can't be a part of this conversation. I hope it makes sense. It, for some people, there's just the idea that you, you can't allow a dissenting point of view like that to exist. But I think there's something to be said for just through the way that you treat other people, through your example, showing them that there's a better way. So maybe I was wrong, maybe not. But what is in a person's mind and what's in a person's heart is none of my business as long as their behavior is peaceful. That's something we need to learn how to keep in mind. And this is one of the things I love about Kent McManigle in that his application of his principles isn't based upon, well, does this person agree with me or not? Because ultimately that really doesn't matter. If it's another person, another human being, they too have natural rights. And if I stand up for their rights the way I would stand up for my own, I'm being consistent in my application of my principles. At least that's the bigger lesson I think I'm seeing. Feel free to set me straight if, if not. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Look, timing is uh, everything when it comes to getting your mortgage, whether it's a VA loan to a traditional loan to reverse mortgages. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience and the stability and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. And that's true anywhere within the state of Utah. So if you have moved to the Intermountain West, you've landed in the Beehive State, get in touch with Heather Turner and Patriot Home Mortgage at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And Heather's office is at 619 South Bluff in St. George, Utah. All right, moving on. You know, Anyone who has started to get serious about personal preparedness uh, is likely to experience some real anxiety as they start to consider what it takes to truly be prepared. And usually it's a matter of costs, okay? So if you have never really practiced food storage, for instance, and you think, you know, that does sound like a good idea, let me just Google, uh, let me let me jump on the Google here and see if I can uh, figure out what it would it cost to put away a year's supply of food. And the first time you Google the price of a year's supply of either freeze-dried or dehydrated food, all packed up and vacuum-sealed and, you know, oxygen absorber and so forth, good to go for 25 or 30 years, you're in for a bit of sticker shock. It ain't cheap. (laughs) But you can become better prepared even if you are on a budget. And I mean, even a person of very modest means, if they will consistently take steps to better their situation, they'll be shocked at how quickly they can build up a personal store of, of tools and food and resources to get them through difficult times. So I found this very interesting exercise from Aiden Tate. This was published on the uh, organicprepper.com website. And it's an exercise about how to build your bug out bag with a $20 bill and a trip to Harbor Freight. Now, this is not to do a complete bug-out bag. And, and for those who aren't familiar with the term, essentially, uh, this is what uh, I think my, my listeners, you know, in the Intermountain West, particularly where there's a great LDS influence, will, will understand the 72-hour kit. Do you have a 72-hour kit for each member of your family? That's kind of what we mean by a bug-out bag. The things you would need if you had to grab it and go that could get you through 72 hours With minimal disruption, in other words, you have food, you have a water source, you have basic first aid, clean, dry socks, you know, toothbrush, this kind of stuff. So hopefully that's not too foreign of a concept. And this isn't going to build the entire bag, but look look at how a simple $20 or less exercise can nonetheless put you in a better position. Aiden Tate says, you're new to the world of prepping. You finally concluded that you need to build a bug out bag, or maybe you've been prepping for a while, but you're trying to figure out how to build another bag on a budget. Well, he says, you might be surprised at the Harbor Freight bug out bag supplies you could get for 20 bucks. So just as a hypothetical, maybe an EMP has struck. You have the foresight to rapidly transition your cash into tangibles before people realize the dollar bill no longer has any value. And he actually has a couple of great articles there about if you're new to building a bug out bag, you know, what kind of things you're going to want to consider. But in all of these cases, you're walking into a Harbor Freight with nothing but a $20 bill in your hand. 
So what can you get for $20 or less that would actually be helpful? Well, he suggests a hatchet. Now, this is $7.99, and he points out that a hatchet makes a great addition to a bug-out bag if you think there's a chance of spending a sizable amount of time out in the woods. All right, well, that sounds, that makes sense. These can not only help you gather firewood, but they can help with clearing a campground. They can be used to pound in tent stakes, and hatchets have something of a history of being used as a weapon as well. So here's a small fiberglass handle hatchet for all of $7.99. Next, he points to a camouflage tarp for $3.49. Now he says, personally, I prefer hammock camping to other types, and for such, you need a tarp. If you're, not, if you're bugging out, he says, you probably want to stay hidden, and the bright blue and gray tarps at Harbor Freight aren't going to be the best deal for the job. So he picked up a camouflage tarp instead. Now, this is four feet by six feet, meaning it's a tad on the smaller side. But that also means it fits within a bug-out bag well, even if it's just an assault bag-sized bug-out bag. And with a cost of only around $4, that's pretty hard to beat. And it can be used for other things. For instance, if you end up with a broken window in your car, this makes a convenient means of covering it up until you can get a new pane of glass as well. Now he says, maybe you laugh at that last application, but he says, I'm telling you, keeping a tarp and some duct tape in your vehicle can save your bacon because windows only break when it's raining. He's got a point there. Next, he says, here's a flashlight for $4.99. He says, I picked up this inexpensive little flashlight, which could easily fit into a pocket for all of $5. Now, Aiden Tate says, I'm a fan of ultralight backpacking, and although I'm by no means as extreme with it as some guys I've seen, I'm always looking for new tricks and tips for lightening my load. So a little flashlight like this can help you to do such. It can easily nest in some little cranny within your bug-out bag until it's needed, and it isn't going to break the bank, but most of all, it gets the job done like changing a flat tire at night when you need it the most. Next item, 50 feet of paracord for $2.99. Now, this isn't as strong as the official paracord that you'll find out there. In other words, he says, I don't think this is 550 paracord, but it's cordage. And that was mainly what I was looking for here. For hanging a tarp, a 160-pound workload can most certainly get the job done. Now, he says, personally, I have yet to have any task while out backpacking that required anywhere near that amount of tensile strength. I totally understand the importance of over-engineering, but I think $2.99 for this paracord will work perfect in a budget bag, or budget uh, bug-out bag. So the final cost was, I walked out of that store, having spent $19.46 on bug-out bag gear, and feeling as if I'd covered my bases with some of the more foundational aspects of a bug-out bag pretty well. I have shelter, cordage, a hatchet, and light. Not bad for less than $20. Now he admits, I considered tossing in a magnesium fire striker or a small knife, but my math was showing me there was a good chance I'd be a bit over $20. I wanted to stay true to the challenge. If all you have is a $20 bill in your pocket, this is what you can get. And he says, I think you'll agree it's a pretty good amount. So the point of these kinds of challenges is to show you that prepping doesn't have to be expensive. You can prep to fit your budget, even if all you have to spend for the moment is $20. Don't despair. You can get quite a good number of preps covered with $20, but you just have to know where to look. And Harbor Freight, he says, is a pretty great place to start, despite the bad reputation it tends to have amongst the tool snobs. 
Though there's no denying that this isn't the thickest of tarps, the hatchet isn't an S-wing, the flashlight isn't a mag light, but his point is you don't always have to shoot for the best of the best. Again, use your budget to determine what you can get that falls within your means, and he says hopefully this challenge has gotten you to think about your own prepping habits. So try the challenge out. See what you think. What would you get with $20 at Harbor Freight? And he asks for feedback in the comments below. Now, I'm going to include a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. So if you want to check this article out, maybe even respond. There's your opportunity. And I'm going to plant one more seed here. Just on the off chance that, uh, you know, winter might be approaching. I don't know. I've been looking at the calendar. We're better than halfway through the month of November. And yeah. Winter is definitely on its way. If you're going to be doing any traveling, do you have the necessary supplies in your vehicle that if you were stuck in the snow or for some reason there was a road closure or heaven forbid your vehicle were to break down, would you have the necessary supplies to get you through whatever, you know, temporary crisis there is? And again, you don't need to be thinking, you know, big time, well, I need, to, let's see, an all-season tent. I need a, a cylinder stove and a ton of coal. And <laughs> that's great stuff to have. But what would you want to have on hand that could help you weather, you know, being stranded in the cold? See, I'm thinking like the, the, the oxygen-activated hand and foot warmers. It's a little thing, but it doesn't take a whole lot of space. A few of those might make a big difference if you're trying to stay warm while hunkered down and, you know, waiting for rescue. What kind of shelf-stable foods do you have on hand? Whether it's jerky or trail mix or something like this, you see what the, the point is here. The time to think about it is right now before you find yourself in that situation. And I love this article for pointing out that you don't need a deep, deep budget in order to get yourself squared away. Just have an idea of what you would like to have, what you what you could possibly use, and then shop for the bargains. I find this kind of stuff exciting, but I accept that uh, that just might be because I'm weird. And if that is the case, well, then, you know, I embrace it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists because there is a battle for your mind. Now, I'm not the one wanting to take over your mind, but I'm encouraging you. You claim it as your own. Think clearly and independently about the world around you. And do not let other people tell you this is what you're allowed to think, this is what you have to say, this is what you must think, because uh, that's, that's how people vie for control of your life. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I, I want you to think as clearly and independently as possible, and most importantly, I want you to be sure of who you are and what you stand for, more so than, hey, here's what we're all against. Now pick up some rocks and let's get throwing them. Much more important 
to know who you are and what you stand for so that you can claim your birthright as a free individual so you can make the difference that you were born to make. Got some great sponsors who make this program possible. Let me just throw a little bit of love their way. They include sponsors like SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, wonderful business, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. And I've thoughtfully included links to every single one of these sponsors in my daily show notes. If you want to check them out, you can go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. If you click subscribe, I will email these show notes to you each day that I do the show. So with that in mind, I would like to dive into an excellent article by Glenn Greenwald. And before I jump into this, I want to explain that Glenn Greenwald, to me, is the epitome of a journalist who is about to giving the facts and letting people make up their own minds as to what conclusion they should draw. And it's curious because he gets a lot of hate. He gets a lot of hate from people who are like, you know, Glenn, we liked you better before you became this right-wing activist. But I promise you, from years and years of having read the man's writing, he's not a right-wing activist. In fact, truth be told, he probably would lean pretty hard to the left side of the spectrum, but the key is... You never would know it from his writing because he's not trying to agendize whatever he writes. He's simply trying to report the facts as best he can. And most importantly, he calls out other news outlets for their lack of objectivity. Ooh, they hate that. In fact, they don't even, they don't even want to include him in their August company of journalists. He's not even a journalist. Pfft. And with the Kyle, New, Kyle Rittenhouse case dominating the news cycle, it's, it's blinding us to some of the other stories that are taking place just out of view of most Americans. And this is where Glenn Greenwald is, is one of the guys who will walk right into the darkness and start shining a light around and reporting on what he sees. For instance, Project Veritas is under a direct attack by the U.S. government, and so is freedom of the press. Now, you may not like Project Veritas. You may think, well, you know, that James O'Keefe's kind of a troublemaker. Perhaps. But that doesn't justify the U.S. government going after him like it has. And Glenn Greenwald directs some sunlight onto both the Rittenhouse story as well as the Veritas story and explains how the tribal slant of much of our media coverage represents a really disturbing inability to think in principles, in terms of principles. Here's the sub-headline to his article. Those whose worldview is bereft of universally applied principles and based solely on tribal allegiances assume everyone else is plagued by this very deficiency. This is one of the reasons I like his writing. There's light in what he is writing. But he allows you and me to come to the truth at our own pace rather than telling us you have to believe this. So Glenn Greenwald writes, the FBI has executed a string of search warrants targeting the homes and cell phones of Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe and several others associated with that organization. Now, it should require no effort to understand why it is a cause for concern that a Democratic administration is using the FBI to aggressively target an organization devoted to obtaining and reporting incriminating information about Democratic Party leaders and their liberal allies. 
Now, that doesn't mean the FBI investigation is inherently improper, says Greenwald. Journalists are no more entitled than any other citizen to commit crimes. If there's reasonable cause to believe O'Keefe and his associates committed federal crimes, then an FBI investigation is as warranted for as, is, as it is for any other case. But the key is there has been no evidence presented that either James O'Keefe or Project Veritas employees have done anything of the sort, nor any explanation provided to justify these invasive searches. That we should want and need that is self-evident. If the Trump-era FBI had executed search warrants inside the newsrooms of the New York Times and NBC News, we would be demanding evidence to prove it was legally justified. Yet virtually nothing has been provided to justify the FBI's targeting of O'Keefe and his colleagues. And the little that has been disclosed by way of justifying this makes no sense. So here's the background about what set this in motion. The FBI investigation concerns theft last year of the diary of Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley. Yet Project Veritas, while admitting they received a copy from an anonymous source, chose not to publish that diary because they were unable to verify it. So nobody and nothing so far suggests that Project Veritas played any role in its acquisition, legal or otherwise. Now, there's a cryptic reference in the search warrant to transmitting stolen material across state lines. But it's not illegal for journalists to receive and use material illegally acquired by a source. The most mainstream organizations spent last month touting documents pilfered from Facebook by their heroic whistleblower, Francis Hogan. So a little over a week ago, Glenn Greenwald talks about producing an in-depth video report examining the FBI's targeting of O'Keefe and Project Veritas and the dangers it presents, as we do for all of our Rumble videos. He says the transcript will soon be made for, made for subscribers. Or you can just watch the video at the Rumble link that he encloses within the article here. But he says one of the primary topics of our report was the authoritarian tactic that is typically used to justify governmental attacks on those who report news and disseminate information, namely to decree that the target is not a real journalist and therefore has no entitlement to claim the First Amendment guarantee of a free press. Now, this not a real journalist tactic was and remains the primary theory used by those who justify the ongoing attempt to imprison Julian Assange. In demanding Assange's prosecution under the Espionage Act, Senator Dianne Feinstein wrote in the Wall Street Journal that Mr. Assange claims to be a journalist and would no doubt rely on the First Amendment to defend his actions. Yet the five-term senator insisted, but he is no journalist. He is an agitator intent on damaging our government whose policies he happens to disagree with, regardless of who gets hurt. Now, Glenn Greenwald says this not-a-real-journalist slogan was also the one used by both the CIA and the corporate media against him and his colleagues in both the Snowden reporting they did in 2013 as well as the failed attempt to criminally prosecute him in 2020 for the year-long Brazil exposés that he did. Punishing them is not an attack on press freedom because they are not journalists and what they did is not journalism. But he says what's most striking about this weapon is that like the campaign to agitate for more censorship, it is led by journalists. It's the corporate media that most aggressively insists that those who are independent, those who are outsiders, those who do not submit to their institutional structures, are not real journalists in the way they are, and thus are not entitled to the protections of the First Amendment. 
In order to create a framework to deny Project Veritas' status as journalist, the New York Times claimed last week that anyone who uses undercover investigations, as Veritas does, is automatically a non-journalist because that entails lying. Even though just two years earlier, the same paper heralded numerous news outlets such as Al Jazeera and Mother Jones for using undercover investigations to accomplish what they called compelling reporting. Now, Greenwald says, I'm very well acquainted with this repressive tactic of trying to decree who is and who is not a real journalist for the purposes of constitutional protection. And many have forgotten, given the awards it ultimately ended up winning, that the NSA Snowden reporting that he and uh, Laura Poitus did in 2013 was originally maligned as quasi-criminal. Not just by the Obama national security officials like James Clapper, but also by the New York Times. The first profile the paper of record published about Glenn Greenwald the day after the reporting began referred to him in the headline as anti-surveillance activist. And then once the backlash ensued, it was changed to blogger. (laughs) I'm going to come back to this on the other side of the break, but this is important because these are the organizations that purport to tell you what is going on. They purport to give you the news of what is happening in your world. But they apparently don't like competition, especially something that challenges the narrative that they are pushing. We're going to talk more about that in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to uh, GovernYourIncome.com. If you are one of the people who find yourself uh, between a rock and a hard place trying to decide... Do I get the vaccine or do I end up losing my job? First of all, my condolences. That's a heck of a tough place to be in. If you are serious, though, about taking command of your income, I would encourage you go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the sponsors links, and I want you to go to governyourincome.com. Now, it will take you to a landing page that has a great explanation about an opportunity that's not for everybody, but for the right person, this could be the way to grow your income and to to be truly independent. You're not working for some corporation. You're not working for anybody but yourself, but you're being trained by a company that will train you well enough. It will trust you with company money to do day trading on the foreign currency exchange or the Forex exchange. Pretty cool stuff. It's a neat system. I don't have time to talk about it in detail here, but again, details are at governyourincome.com. If it's not right for you, maybe you know somebody who would would, uh, be a good fit. Maybe pass it their direction. So I'm sharing this article from Glenn Greenhouse. Glenn Greenhouse. Glenn Greenwald. (laughs) Sorry, Kyle Rittenhouse is kind of lodged in my brain here. Glenn Greenwald on uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse Project Veritas reporting, particularly Project Veritas, which is now in the crosshairs of the FBI, because they had possession of a diary that uh, had belonged to Joe Biden's daughter. And by the way, some will say, well, we don't even know if it's the real diary. But I'm going to ask you to consider, would the FBI be getting involved if it weren't? Would they care? So just a thought. 
But it's the idea that that people who do not fall within the structures of the approved media, in other words, the, the regime reporters, the court reporters, if you will, is somehow not a real journalist. And Greenwald recounts his own, you know, experiences as as he was breaking news about Edward Snowden, as he was reporting on Julian Assange. He says the New York Times own public editor purposely denied him the label journalist. And he says the paper, when they did that back in 2013, you know, with, with Snowden's revelations, was knowingly increasing the risks that Greenwald could be prosecuted for his reporting. In fact, recent reporting from Yahoo News about CIA plots to kidnap or murder Julian Assange reported that denying Assange the label journalist and then redefining what Glenn Greenwald and his colleague Laura Poitras were doing from journalist to information broker would be a loophole for the U.S. government to spy on or even prosecute them without having to worry about that inconvenient free press guarantee of the First Amendment. Now, all of this... By the way, he has snapshots of all the different headlines Blogger with a focus on surveillance is at center of debate. I promise you, New York Times, Glenn Greenwald is much more worthy of the title journalist than anybody in your organization at this point. You're not a watchdog. You're a lapdog, like so much of the legacy press has become. And the sooner that you and I as consumers of this information make that distinction, the better off we're going to be because we'll know to avoid it like the plague. Greenwald says, all of this demonstrates how dangerous it is to invoke this very same not-a-real-journalist tactic against O'Keefe and Project Veritas. Yet if one warns of the dangers of the FBI's actions, that's precisely what one hears from liberals, from Democrats, and from their allies in the media. The FBI's targeting of Project Veritas has nothing to do with press freedoms because they're not real journalists. So they're invoking the authoritarian theory that maintains that the state or in this case, the FBI, has somehow been vested with the power to decree who is a real journalist, whatever that means, and who is not. Now, there are so many ironies to the use of this framework. So often, employees of media corporations who've never broken a major story in their lives, and never will, revel in accusing independent journalists who've broken major, numerous, numerous major stories, such as Assange, of not being real journalists. In fact, he recounts how at the height of the Edward Snowden reporting, Greenwald went on Meet the Press in July of 2013 only for the host, David Gregory, to suggest that, uh, well, maybe you ought to be in prison alongside your source, Edward Snowden, because you're not really a journalist, the way David Gregory was. (laughs) Now, at the time, Frank Rich, writing in New York Magazine, noted how bizarre it was that the TV personality David Gregory assumed that he was a real journalist, whereas I was a non-journalist who belonged in prison for my reporting, given that Gregory, like most employees of large media corporations, had never broken any story in his life. Rich used a Q&A format to make the point this way. On Sunday, Meet the Press host David Gregory all but accused the Guardian's Glenn Greenwald of aiding and abetting Edward Snowden's fugitive travels, asking, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? And speaking to his larger point, do you see Greenwald as a journalist or an activist in this episode? And does it matter? Is David Gregory a journalist? As a thought experiment, name one piece of news he has broken, one beat he's covered with distinction, and any memorable interviews he's conducted that were not with John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Dick Durbin, or Chuck Schumer. 
Meet the Press has fallen behind CBS's Face the Nation, much as today has fallen to ABC's Good Morning America. And my guess is that Gregory didn't mean to sound like Joe McCarthy with a splash of the oiliness of Roy, Roy Cohn, but was only playing the part to make some noise. In any case, his charge is preposterous. As a journalist who published Edward Snowden's link, leaks, rather, Greenwald was doing the job of a journalist. And the fact that he's an activist journalist, an opinion journalist, like me and a zillion others, is irrelevant to that journalistic function. It's easier for Gregory to go after Greenwald, a self-professed outsider who's not likely to attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner and works for a news organization based in London. Presumably, if Gregory had been around 40 years ago, he would have accused the Times of aiding and abetting the enemy when it published Daniel Ellsberg's, Ellsberg's massive leak on the Pentagon Papers. In any case, Greenwald demolished Gregory on air and on Twitter. Who needs the government to try to criminalize journalism when you have David Gregory to do it? Now, Greenwald says, at the time, both in terms of that exchange with Gregory and my overall reporting on the NSA, I had significant support from the liberal left, although it was far from universal, given that we were exposing mass, indiscriminate, illegal spying by the Obama administration. But he says, few believe that I ought to be prosecuted on the grounds that somehow I wasn't a real journalist. So why are so many of them now willing to endorse this exact same theory when it comes to O'Keefe and Project Veritas, or even to justify the prosecution of Julian Assange? And the answer is obvious. They are unwilling or incapable of thinking in terms of principles, ones that apply universally to everyone regardless of their ideology. Their thought process never even arrives at that destination. And when the subject of the FBI's attack on O'Keefe is raised or the DOJ's prosecution of Assange is discussed, they ask themselves one question and that only one, only that one question, and that ends the inquiry. Is the exclusive and determinate factor, it's the exclusive and determinate factor, do I like James O'Keefe and his politics or do I like Julian Assange and his politics? Now, this primitive, principle-free, personality-driven prism is the only way they are capable of understanding the world. And because they dislike O'Keefe and or Assange, they instantly side with whoever is targeting them. The FBI, the DOJ, the security state services, and believe anyone who defends them is defending a right-wing extremist rather than defending the non-ideological, universally applicable principle of press freedoms. They only think in terms of personalities, not principles. I'm going to leave the rest of this for you to discover. But the idea here is, in sum, those who view, the, who view the world through a prism bereft of principles, either due to lack of intellectual capacity or ethics or both, assume that everyone else's worldview is similarly craven. And Greenwald says it's the same twisted or stunted mindset that saddles our discourse with so much illogic and so many twisted presumptions such as the inability to distinguish between defending someone's right to express a particular opinion and agreement with that opinion. This is why you and I have to sharpen up on our game of sorting fact from fiction. But I do recommend Greenwald's work. He's much more of a truth teller than most journalists out there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. You've stuck with me this far. Going to try and make it worth your while here for the, the next couple of segments. I'm still on a little bit of a kick here about to learning to see through the daily narratives that were being force-fed. And I think this takes a very conscious decision regarding the kind of media that you consume on a daily basis. Now, there are a couple of things I want to touch on here. Uh, one is an article. In fact, I'm going to start with this one. This is from Paul Rosenberg. I, I picked this up a couple of years ago. I think this was originally written back in uh, 2016. The headline, Talk Politics for 10 Seconds and I'll Know Where You Get Your News. Now, I know you don't want to think, I'm not that predictable, but hear him out. He says, whether the current furor over fake news sizzles or uh, fizzles rather or ends in state censorship, there is a legitimate issue beneath all the fear-mongering. Now, keep in mind, this is 2016. Fake news. This is, this is before Trump ever took office. Moreover, he says it's a problem that's been known for a long time. In daily life, it shows up like this. Have someone talk politics for just 10 seconds, and I can tell you with 80% accuracy where they get their news. I kind of have that same little, uh, I have a test of my own, and that is, tell me what makes you mad. And based on what a person tells me gets them angry, I can tell with the, with a surprising degree of accuracy where they get their news. See, if certain phrases come up, Paul Rosenberg writes, I know that this person watches MSNBC or CNN, or that they read things like the Huffington Post. If they speak another way, then I know they watch Fox News, or they listen to certain talk radio shows and read things like Newsmax. In other words, people who consume news have become polarized and badly so. Now, this is a legitimate problem, though he says, I'm not endorsing state censorship to fix it. That'd be like cutting off your hand to fix a hangnail. Years ago, he says, I wrote a little series of essays for myself entitled Closed Circuit Thinking, mostly as a way of clarifying my own thoughts. And in it, I address the problems that arise in groups of people that listen to no voices but their own. And as it turns out, I wasn't the only person thinking along these lines. There's now a considerable body of work on the subject, generally called group polarization. Here's how it works. When a group of people with the same opinions remains in a single room, the opinion moves inevitably to the extreme. Many tests have been done with widely varied groups, and it happens every time. The more outgoing people in any group will always struggle to make their voices heard above the din. So to be regarded, of course, one must have something different to say. And since everyone in the room already holds the same opinion, the logical move is to take the opinion a bit farther than it's already gone. Taking it away from the, the extreme would make you appear unfaithful to the group. As a result, as a result rather, people in self-contained groups get more and more polarized and ever harsher toward any groups they see as opponents. Now he warns, don't blame the Internet. He says, the blame in this situation rests in us, not in any technical system. In other words, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. That said, the Internet gave this problem a place to thrive. Pre-polarized websites, blogs, and social media channels have proliferated. It's now possible to enclose yourself in your chosen ideology, feasting on us-versus-them opinions. Highly emotional public clashes and the demonization of opponents. And it is a problem. But again, the problem isn't so much that these things exist, but so many, but that so many people reward them. 
They want to be told how right they are. They want to see their enemies dismembered. The job of the Washington Post, if we're to be blunt about it, is to dismember the enemies of the right-thinking left. And it's the job of the Rush Limbaugh's of the world to dismember the enemies of the righteous right. Although he says to Limbaugh's credit, he admits it. The choice to limit ourselves to these sources, however, he says, is our own. We don't have to consume news 24-7, and we can certainly pick among many sources. But the fact is that groups do evolve this way. They polarize themselves. Whether we like it or not, it remains to us to acknowledge it, to transcend those clannish instincts, and to walk away from self-congratulatory cloisters. And the bottom line is, he says, in the end, contrary opinions are good for us. Excluding them can be dangerous. We shouldn't be looking for pre-digested, comfortable answers. And I love that he closes with a quote from George Carlin. Take it to heart and you'll escape this problem. George Carlin said, no matter how you care to define it, I do not identify with the local group. Plant, species, race, nation, state, religion, party, union, club, association, neighborhood, improvement committee. I have no interest in any of it. I love and treasure individuals as I meet them. I loathe and despise the groups they identify with and belong to. Got a link to this in the show notes, and I would encourage you, take a look at it for yourself. Now, learning to see through those daily narratives requires that we make a conscious decision about the kinds of media that we consume on a daily basis. And the editorial board at Issues and Insights has some very blunt but also solid advice They say, please stop trusting anything, the mainstream media report. And they give some very good examples why this should be the case. Issues and Insights says America's mainstream or legacy media have an agenda. It's not to subjectively report the truth, but to further leftist ideas and policies, all of which are toxic. The press's disinformation campaign to prop up critical race theories, yet another example of its effort to deceive, manipulate, and divide on behalf of the party it's constantly shilling for. A new study from the American Enterprise Institute found the media focus on schools teaching the history of slavery and racism and largely ignore the bedrock assumptions of critical race theory, including its explicit rejection of rationality and objectivity. AEI's Frederick M. Hess examined all news accounts addressing CRT published over a one-year period by four major newspapers. That would be the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today as well as several influential education press outlets. All are news accounts, none are opinion pieces. Given that this admittedly revolutionary worldview is what motivates many objections to CRT-influenced pedagogy, one might expect, one would expect, news accounts to routinely address it, Hess writes in media's misleading portrayal in the fight over critical race theory. Remarkably, however, CRT's guiding assumptions were rarely mentioned in mainstream media or education press news accounts. Continues Hess, only a tiny sliver of news accounts even mentioned the substantive concerns about critical race theory or sought to explore the actual tensions. This is a grave disservice to parents, communities, and educators indicated interested rather in finding productive ways to debate these heated issues. Now, Issues and Insights editorial staff says media bias has also infected coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which is now in the jury deliberation stage. The bias has been so severe that several on the left 
are now willing to admit they were duped by the press's Rittenhouse reporting. That's according to Legal Insurrection. At least one woman who describes herself as highly educated and reasonably perceptive rather, tweeted less than a week ago, quote, it was only today that I learned the Kyle Rittenhouse victims were white. She said, my progressive bubble made this seem like a very different case than it is. Now, this highly educated and reasonably perceptive woman also noted that all my friends and family are progressives and only recently woke up to their hypocrisy and mainstream media BS. She said, if you hear someone called a white supremacist enough times, you believe it. And she actually suggested, maybe it's time to start questioning everything you've been told. It's a healthy skepticism that's been keeping her very, very busy of late. Now, some people would criticize her. Well, what a flip-flopper. You can't even, you know, stick to your own point of view. Hey, I think what she's doing is is, uh, heroic and is indicative of a person of good character who, upon encountering new truth, adjusts her thinking. I saw the tweet that, uh, that went out, and I remember seeing that and thinking, good for her. I wish more people had that kind of courage to say, hey, I've been duped. But of course, you know, there was there was the ratio to worry about, too. And there were plenty of people piling on and telling her, you, you've been duped by all these, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, supporters. Now, you can see the same kind of disconnect when it comes to how mainstream journalists have been very busy trying their best to bury their years of distorted Russia, Russia, Russia reporting. I mean, you do remember the narrative that Donald Trump and Russia conspired to throw the 2016 election to the Republican is quickly coming around. Unwound, rather. (laughs) A reckoning hitting news organizations for years-old coverage of the 2017 Steele dossier is hitting that after the document's primary source was charged with lying to the FBI. That's according to Axios, the news outlet founded by former Politico uh, uh, hands, meaning it's on the opposite side of the spectrum from Fox News. And this is what they reported on Sunday. They said it's one of the most egregious journalistic errors in modern history, and the media's response to its own mistakes has so far been tepid. Now, to its partial credit, the Washington Post has published corrections to two of its Russia, Russia, Russia stories and removed parts from both. So it's a good start. But you got to beware. Buyer beware. Consumer beware of what you're reading. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Going to continue on here in just a moment with a couple more thoughts from Issues and Insights and their warning to stop trusting anything the mainstream media report. Before I do, a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Yes, we are talking food storage. This is a ReadyWise distributor. Kendall Whiting is the proprietor. He is a great person, and he has uh, he has put together a special discount specifically for my listeners. Now, when I tell you this is a great discount, I'm talking if you went to ReadyWise themselves, if you went directly to them, you would not get this good of a deal. So maybe jump on this if this is something that makes sense. Take a look at the various uh, freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. We're talking 25-year shelf life. 
You can go for, you know, a big comprehensive package of food storage. You can go for just filling in gaps in smaller ways. But for that 25% discount, just include H-Y-D-E as your coupon code at checkout. That's that's my last name, Hyde. Use that as your coupon code. Say 25%. It's a huge discount. And the timing has never been better to take action on building your own self-reliance. Lifesavingfood.com can help make that a possibility. So just want to come back to a couple other points here from the Issues and Insights editorial about stop trusting anything the mainstream media report. And they, they were talking specifically about how the Russiagate narrative has fallen apart. It's, it's very clear. Despite all that drumming of, oh, yes, any day now, any day now, Trump is going to be done for because of Russiagate. It was all false. It was all lies. And even though the Washington Post has published two uh, corrections to its Russia, Russia, Russia stories, one from 2017 and the other from 2019, in recognizing that its decision to edit and repost the stories is highly unusual in the industry, the Post did concede the enormity of the mistake. So why is it that media errors always seem to benefit Democrats and harm Republicans? Post-media reporter Paul Fari said, It's rare for a publication to make wholesale changes after publication and to republish the edited story, especially more than four years afterward. So the Issues and Insights editorial staff says the media need to wake up to the fact that the public's confidence in their reporting is in a free fall. In fact, they just did a poll that shows trust in the traditional press has declined 16% just over the past eight months. Gee, I wonder why. More than half, 54% of the respondents, say they have little to no trust at all in the traditional media, while only 38% said they either had a lot or quite a bit of trust. By the way, those who have a lot of trust, I think you'll find typically they're all over 55 years of age. The young people, they're not having it. So maybe we can rely on the New York Food Time, or the New York Times food section or the fashion reporters at the Los Angeles Times or possibly those who cover the automobile industry to give us straight story without bias. But then again, we know politics and wokeness has slipped, no, stampeded into every corner of today's newsrooms. We are constantly told what we can eat and what we cannot eat, what's acceptable for us to wear and what isn't, and badgered about our transportation choices. It's no coincidence that nonstop media hectoring about how we think and how we pr- conduct our lives is consistent with promoting Democrat leftist progressive policies and plans. And the Issues and Insights editorial board says, Our hope is that we're nearing rock bottom, if not already there, and a new day of objective journalism is at hand. If not, our country and our world are just going to grow darker. Now, personally, I'm feeling a little bit of encouragement here. And, and maybe this is just delusional. It's, you know, it's totally possible. I'm, I may be up in the night on this. But because I have been a part of helping to build media platforms that address this deficiency or at least offer other ways to get information, I think we're only seeing the very beginning of how this problem is going to be resolved. Podcasting is is the new frontier, much, much harder to control the narrative, despite all of the, you know, algorithmic censorship and and attempts on the part of social media to try to keep those unpopular views off in the margins and out of the light. You know, we don't want too many people looking at them. 
but people still find them. Matter of fact, I make it my business to help people find those uh, non-traditional voices or those dissenting voices. And even if you have no aspirations to, to be a media figure, you still have the ability to use your voice wisely. Saw a quote from, I think it was Mira Hadlow, that said something to the effect of, before you silence yourself to keep the peace, ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen if I use my voice? Usually the answer is going to be something like, well, this person may dislike me. That's it. And Myra Hadlow says, if you're silencing yourself for this reason, they already don't like you. They only like a fictional version of you. So raise your voice. Dare to be unpopular. I think this is more important than ever. And it's not because, you know, everybody needs to get out there and feel the pain, okay? We're not masochists. We don't, we're not doing this because it's fun to, to be attacked or to be uh, besmirched. It's because the more people raise their voices, the more that illusion of consensus, well, you know, everybody feels this way. No, sir, that's not true. I don't. And I'm a believer that a person who stands on principle does not stand alone, even if they're standing by themselves at that moment. You know, I believe that, uh, I think God stands with them. And more importantly, I believe that they will have the benefit of a clear conscience when one day they stand before God and account for what kind of person were you? What kind of a source of light and truth were you in your life? The people who just tried to avoid any criticism and to avoid any conflict or avoid anybody you know, thinking or saying something unkind about them doesn't mean they're a bad person. But I can't help but wonder if they won't feel a sense of shame at the missed opportunities to hold up some light at a time when it was needed. One final note here, and I'm just going to touch on this one briefly. I'm going to include an article in today's show notes from Andrea Widberg from AmericanThinker.com. The otherization of unvaccinated people is proceeding quickly. And this is, this is one of the really scary, defining issues of our time. And sadly, a lot of people have bought into this. And I don't just mean, you know, you know people in the national media or politicians at the national level or state level. I see it play out even on the family level. People who have seen friendships end because of that otherization of the unvaccinated. Andrea Woodbrook says in America, a medical ethicist says it's fine for primary care practitioners to refuse to treat unvaccinated people. In France, older people who don't get their boosters will be denied access to amenities. And in Austria, unvaccinated people will be confined to house arrest for a disease with a minimal mortality rate for healthy people under 60. The race to otherize them, otherize them continues unabated. And she gives some very solid examples of, of what this looks like and people who are being, you know, marginalized, forced out of the, the boundaries of polite society because they will not go along with the mandates. I'm going to just cut to the chase here. She says, in France, all those over 65 who haven't received a vaccination booster will lose their health passes. In other words, their health or their their vaccination ID. That means they too will be denied access to the world around them. Austria is already leading out here. 
Starting Monday of this week, unvaccinated residents ages 12 and older only are allowed to leave their homes to go to work or purchase essential items. Now, this lockdown is set to last 10 days and will not apply to those who are vaccinated against COVID-19 or who've recently recovered from it, according to Reuters. Andrea Woodberg says again, and I can't emphasize this often enough, all this punitive action is in response to a disease that has on average a 99% survival rate. We have become a world of extraordinary cowards, so isolated from risk that even a statistically minor risk turns us into quivering masses of fear who will hand over every vestige of liberty to people who've proven over the last almost two years incapable of keeping us safe. So resist the urge to otherize people. At the same time, if you find yourself, you know, in that unpopular place of uh, you, you look at, uh, you know, well, wait a minute, a person's only considered fully vaccinated if they've had their last booster within the last six months. You recognize, of course, that's the kind of thing that could go on indefinitely. I mean, after how many boosters would you concede that, hey, maybe I really have converted my immune system into a subscription service? I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I am trying to point out that the people who, you know, are labeled as vaccine hesitant have really good reasons for not going along with that imperative if you do this or else. And just know by standing up for their rights, they're standing up for your rights as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.